Well, we covered last week the first 21 verses of chapter 8, and we saw how God condescended to participate in the temple worship. His glory has filled the entire building, leaving Solomon and the leaders of the nation in awe. And so we saw Solomon turn to bless the leaders and declare God's faithfulness to his promises. And so when you finish verse 21, it it seems like a good place to kind of end the ceremony. But kind of similar to how Moses wanted to go deeper with God and ask to see God's glory after he got an answer, a positive answer from God, uh, Solomon hopes for even more goodness from the Lord. And so he turns instead back to the Lord in prayer in verse 22, and we get here one of the most beautiful and really just, I say powerful prayers in the sense there's a lot we can learn from it in all of Scripture. So chapter 8, well, we're going to pick it up in verse 22. It says, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and he spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keeps covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their heart, who has kept with your servant David my father that which you promised him. You spoke also with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you promised him. So we see here that Solomon has kind of two concepts he's doing here. He's thanking the Lord, but then he's making a request. And, and, and most of what this prayer is going to be is that request. So it starts off by showing us, and we're going to break down Solomon's prayer into different parts, but it starts off by showing us his position in prayer in verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. This is the brass altar of sacrifice. So all the people would be able to see him. I say people. These are all the leaders of Israel that he summoned for this event. They can all see him there because Second Chronicles 6 tells us that they had made a scaffold for him to speak from. Verse 54 also tells us, if we read it, when he's done praying, it says, And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. So here it tells us his position in verse 22. We see he spread forth his hands toward heaven, but now we find out later on from other scriptures that he's on this scaffold where they can see him, and he's kneeling. So he is kneeling, and he stretches forth his hands toward the sky. Now, you may have seen people tonight or maybe at past services raise their hands and maybe you've wondered, you know, why do people stretch out their hands to the sky when they pray or when they sing? Well, there are certainly too many Scripture references to cover them all in one Bible study tonight that talk about this, but I will reference a few. It was customary back then when approaching a king to kneel with one's hands extended. You would kneel on the ground, but with your hands extended, palms on the floor. Usually your face was to the floor as well. It it was called obeisance. Uh, There's another word, and it's just leaving my mind. But they would do this with their face toward the ground towards a king. In fact, our word worship in the Bible comes from this action, 
The word worship, it means to kiss toward. And so you would, it talks about describing the person kneeling before the king with their hands out, face to the ground, kissing in a sense toward the king. And so sometimes when we lift our hands, what we are communicating to God is that we are in awe of Him, that He is in charge, that He is the king, and that we are His servants. We read in Psalm 63, that's what David is doing when he says, I lift my hands unto your name. So sometimes people are doing that. Sometimes when we lift our hands, it is because we are reaching out for help. You know, if, if my kids were little, little, and they would fall or oh, they'd, they'd get hurt or something, you know, they'd just come running toward you crying like this. And it's the same kind of action that's being described here. We're reaching out for help. Almost every mention in the book of Psalms of lifting hands to the Lord refers to this reason. I'm reaching out to you for help, God. In fact, this is the lifting up of holy hands that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy 2.8 because we're interceding for other men, lifting up our hands. People in the Bible sometimes raise their hands to make a commitment to God or even to another person. In Genesis 14.22, we see Abraham do this. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. If you have another translation, it might say, I've sworn. But it, the, literally in the Hebrew, it means lifted my hand, which is what the King James says. Sometimes that's what we're doing when we lift up our hands. It reflects a position of surrender and obedience, of vulnerability, but commitment. Lord, I'm wide open. I'm trusting you, and I'm totally yielded and surrendered to you. And then the fourth reason we see sometimes in the Bible people raise their hands, they would thrust their hands to the sky in excitement over all God had done. In Genesis 29, 25, we see this, an example of this here. In Genesis 29, 25, and it came to pass in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Oh, that doesn't look right. That is not right. 2935. <laughs> and she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left off bearing. That word praise actually is the Hebrew word to shoot or throw out one's hands. Now I will lift my hands to the Lord. I will shoot my hands or thrust my hands to the sky in praise. And certainly as Christians, when we think of all Jesus did for us on the cross, we have a reason to be excited and thankful, don't we? So, now, I say all this, and I realize that God created us uh, uniquely. He created our emotions. If you're a bit on the emotional side, that's God's fault, right? If you're a bit not, that's God's fault too, right? I mean, He designed us with our unique personalities. We're, in a sense, similar to a snowflake. You know, not that some of you are snowflakes, but, um, you know, we, there, there's not one alike. We are, in a sense, we are unique, that God has made all of us uniquely different. And so, we're I know we like to have these personality things, and like the, I love, what is it in Charlie Brown when he comes to her little desk where she's you know, a therapist and she's you know, charging whatever it is, like 25 cents to diagnose everybody, and, and she's like, what's your problem? And he's like, oh, I don't know. And she's like, well, you got to tell me what your problem is because we have to label it. We can't treat you until we label it. And sometimes I feel like that's how our culture is at times. We've got to label you. We've got to put you in some kind of category. And the truth is, is that nobody fits into a category. We're all unique and because we're all uniquely individually designed by God. And so while there may be similarities, we are unique in our emotions. And God created us with emotions. He created us as emotional beings. And so each of us have our own unique emotional way about us. 
Some of us will be more expressive than others, but some of us will be less expressive. So I'm not telling you if you don't do this, you're not godly. That's not my point. My, my point is that I want our worship here at church to be intelligent. I want us to know why we're doing what we do. If you just see everybody else raise your hands and you're kind of caught up in the emotion you're doing it, I'm not saying it's bad, but I would say it's better to think about why you're doing that. Very frequently, if, you know, my, my mood is one of, Lord, I need to lay some stuff down. You know, there's that kind of just arms out wide, just I'm yielded to you. Like hit me with your best shot because I, I don't want to hold anything back from you. And there are other times, you know, maybe when it is that praise is like, yes, God. So I think it's important that our worship is intelligent. And so I would urge you to consider all of these different reasons for raising your hands when you pray or when you worship. You know, if you've seen, you know, our leaders pray here, you might see them every once in a while raise up their hand. Sometimes it's because they're saying, God, we need you to help in this situation. We need your help. We're crying out to you. So there's nothing wrong with that. You know, don't think that's weird. These, again, we're different, and, and we express ourselves to the Lord the things that we're thinking about in different ways. And these are the biblical ways that we can do that. Solomon stretches out his hands to heaven in this prayer for three of those reasons. In the first part of his prayer, he expresses his awe in God's faithfulness, and he, he is recognizing God as the true king. In the second part of his prayer, he relays his commitment to obedience, that surrender. And then in the third part of his prayer, he expresses his deep need for God to work in his life and in the lives of his people when they sin. So let's start at the beginning in verse 23 by looking at his recognition of God as the true king. So 1 Kings 8, 23, Solomon prays. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Israel was surrounded by other nations who worshiped other gods. But Solomon declares that none of them are like the Lord. There's not a single one above or on earth beneath. Anywhere you can find an idol, none of them are like the Lord our God. And he explains why. Who keeps covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all your heart. That word keeps, it means he remains steadfast. And how could Solomon say anything but that? He knew their history. We've already seen in this chapter that Solomon knows the Scriptures. I don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll find out. But I'm absolutely convinced that, that this guy had been trained in the Scriptures because he, he makes obscure references to, to Scriptures that sometimes I'm like, is that, a, is that a Bible verse? And then I go look it up like it is. He knew the Word of God. And that means he knew their history. Israel had violated their covenant with God numerous times during the period of the Judges. But all throughout that, we see that God keeps his side of the deal with those who remained faithful to him. He never completely cast Israel off, even when he was disciplining them, and he never will. And what Solomon says is this amazing day that we're experiencing right now, where God's presence is in the temple, is proof of that. God doesn't owe us this, but he has kept his promise. Verse 24, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you promised him. You promised also with your mouth, and you have fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. So, in the first part of his prayer, Solomon recognizes God as the true king, the faithful one who keeps his promises. But that wasn't the only promise God made to David. Verse 25, 
Therefore now, he says, Lord God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that which you promised him, saying, there shall not fail you, a man in my sight, to sit on the throne of Israel, so that your children take heed to their way. Oh, of Israel, that's the promise. And then he says, only if, which is what so means there, only if that your children heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified, which you spoke unto your servant David, my father. This is so cool because the way Solomon phrases it, it doesn't sound like it at first, but when we look at it in detail, we can see what he's doing here. This is now where he moves from recognizing God as the true king, and he relays his commitment, his commitment to obedience. He says, therefore, because you were faithful to that promise and because there's no God like you, he says, keep the rest of it. You said that there would not fail of David, a man from his line, to sit on the throne of Israel with one caveat. If only your children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you, David, have walked before me. God's only requirement to keep this part of his promise to David was Solomon's obedience. And Solomon in verse 26, he says, and now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified. Now, can Solomon say that? Lord, do it, unless he's being obedient. He can't. So what Solomon is saying here to the Lord is he's saying, Lord, I am committed to behaving the way that you want me to. I am not living life on my own terms, so please remain steadfast to your other promise to my father David. Make that happen too. And then in verse 27, Solomon, the other part of why he's lifting up his hands, he expresses a deep need for God to work in their lives. He realizes that God is too big for a temple. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven of the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have builded. You can tell that this is not like a rehearsed prayer. I mean, who, who rehearses a prayer and then asks a question in the middle of it? Solomon is just pouring out his heart to the Lord. He's recognizing God as king. He's letting the Lord know I'm committed to obedience. I'm surrendered to you. But now he says, God, even though you've condescended, this temple can't hold you. You don't dwell on the earth. The heaven of heavens can't contain you. How much less this house that I have built. What we see in this prayer is similar to our prayer sometimes. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I can't pray. I don't know how to pray like that person. What do you mean you don't know how to pray like that person? Well, everything sounds just right. Well, so I'll give you a little bit of an inside tip. I tell my worship leaders, I say, listen, think about what you're going to pray before you pray, because otherwise you're going to get up there and ramble. So I say, narrow it down to like two or three sentences. Think about what you're going to pray beforehand. So yeah, I mean, guys who are like in a church service where we have some time constraints and things like that, I think about what I'm going to say before I pray. I think about that before the service because we're on a time limit. But generally when we're just praying in a group or praying together or something like that, people haven't really thought a ton about what they're going to say beforehand. There's a lot of thoughts banging around in their head and they come out as they pray. And so I would encourage you, if you, you don't feel confident in prayer, well, just talk to the Lord. I remember as a new believer, I was so unpolished in my prayers. I, I made somebody laugh the first time I prayed publicly because I, 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 was, I was an 80s kid, and we said like, man, every like third word. And so I was like, man, God, 
You're so awesome, you know, and man, man, we need you and whatever. And, you know, and I got done praying and they, this guy was giggling. My friend was giggling. And he's just like, well, I can tell you're genuine at least. You know? <laughs> but that, I was just talking to the Lord. So I had to talk to somebody else. It doesn't have to be polished. There's a lot of thoughts that are rattling around in Solomon's head right now. And this is the one that pops out. He's thinking, Lord, I'm asking you to do this amazing thing. I'm, I'm going to ask you in a minute to make this temple even more special than it is now by having your presence in it. I'm going to ask for some specific things, but is it even possible for a building to be special? I mean, it can't contain you. You don't need to dwell on the earth. So, I mean, these thoughts are rattling around in his head, and finally he just cries out, will you be limited? And the answer, of course, is No. God is way too big for that. And so this realization as Solomon's thinking about what he's going to ask the Lord now and the seriousness of it, it hits him in the middle of his prayer. And so he just says, Lord, I, I know you, you can't be limited. Yet, verse 28, have thou respect unto the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you this day. I'm going to ask for something big, God. I'm going to ask for something absurd. But Lord, would you hear it? I know you're too big for this building, but would you hear it and would you make it special? This is another reason why God is not like any God created by people. God isn't the God of lightning or the God of the sea or the God of fertility or the God of your crops or the God of war. He is the Lord of all and everything else in creation is puny by comparison. And yet, that God would condescend to participate with His presence in the temple stirs faith in Solomon to be bold, to ask God to do even more because God's so big. And so he says, Lord, despite the, the fact that this temple can't live up to your glory, would you have respect to my request? It means would you turn yourself toward the idea of turning your back on someone, it's kind of offensive, right? Especially if they're asking you something. Say, hey, can you? And you just turn like that. It's, it's an obvious no, right? The Lord, he says, Lord, would you turn yourself toward me? He says, I want, I want you to do more than just be your presence to be here. He says, Lord, would you treat certain prayers toward this temple as special? Verse 29 this is his request, that your eyes might be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may hearken unto the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place, my prayers, and hearken thou to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive." Now, we are New Testament believers, right? We have been well taught. The church is not this building, right? Who's the church? You guys, right? Me, you, all of us, we're the church, all right? The church is not a building. The church is where God's people are. So we understand this. We've been taught. I'm not, I don't have to go to a location to experience God. Sometimes some of our more charismatic brethren forget that, but we won't talk about that today. We are, God is not restricted to a location, so certainly God is not restricted to a temple that Solomon might build. 
And yet, even though we understand that, I think sometimes we just forget the goodness of God. I will frequently hear people say, well, I don't have to go to church. I can worship God anywhere. Yes, you can, but you should go to church, and not just because God commands us to, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The word assembling there refers to a public gathering. Don't forsake the public gathering of believers in your area. It's not just because of that. It's because God has decided to do something special when we gather together. Because he says, if there are two or more there, I'm in the midst. If two or more will agree touching anything when they pray, I'll do it. We must not forget the idea that God has condescended to be even better than anything we could dream of. And this is something that the Jewish people understood far better than I think we do at times. He says, Lord, my request is that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day. It's such a cool word. The word open here, it means to be in a position that allows movement between two spaces. Lord, I want you to put yourself in a position where there's lots of movement between heaven and this place, where you're doing things. For example, when I open my eyes, light enters, and I move from darkness to sight. When I open my mouth, speech follows, usually. And thus, the phrase, eyes be open towards something, means, Lord, see and respond. See what's going on here at this temple and respond towards it no matter what time of day it is, any time and all the time. God, I'm asking that when you see someone praying to you with this temple in mind, no matter the day or the hour that it occurs, that you'll respond to it in a special way. Now, did God have to do that? I mean, is there anything special about this building? You know, it was like God's going, well, it is made of gold. I guess I should stay. No, I mean, God is not bound by a building. There's nothing holy or intrinsically unique about that building unless God makes it something unique. And that's what Solomon is asking God to do. He says, Lord, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place which you have said, my name shall be there. And then what he says, that you may hearken unto the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place. He says, God, will you please do this for me? That when I pray towards this building, that I know is just a building, and I know can't contain you, and isn't special without you. But when I pray toward this building, no matter what time of day it is, will you hear my prayer? And will you answer it? Solomon then includes the rest of the nation. Verse 30, and hearken thou to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they shall pray towards this place. And hear thou in heaven your dwelling place. And then here we get a clue to what Solomon specifically has in mind when he's asking this request. He says, and when you hear, what does he say? What's the next word at the end, last word of verse 30? Forgive. Oh. This isn't just any prayer Solomon has in mind. These are prayers for when they've sinned. The word forgive, it means to remove the guilt that is associated with a moral wrong. Solomon acknowledges something that the pagans did not when they would build their temples. 
They had idols, physical representations of their God, and they would put those physical representations of their God in those buildings. And so they believed and considered their gods to be in that location. Solomon says, Lord, you don't dwell in buildings, you dwell in heaven. And I realize that this temple is not some talisman to lock you away, so you have to do whatever we ask. A person could, of course, pray in any direction, and God could answer, right? But Solomon's heart is that this place would be more than a place where rituals happen, that would remind the people to look to the Lord, to remind them of their need for a genuine relationship with Him. When we're around other believers, who, as we'll get into this in a moment, but we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. When we're around other believers, when we're in a gathering place, these are the things that are, we're reminded of. Like, I might have had the worst week in the whole wide world. I might have stayed away from God for a whole week, but I can show up on Sunday, and between the, the conversations I have, the Bible teaching that I experience, the presence of the Lord that's here, it reminds me, it says, Will, it's important to have a relationship with your Savior. So no church isn't a talisman that makes everything better. Neither would the temple be. But his heart is that it would remind the people to look to the Lord, that when they would think about it, when they would see it, it would draw them to see their genuine need for a relationship with their God. And so we see Solomon here with those arms outstretched conveying his great need. God, we easily forget you. So when we remember to look to you because this temple reminds us to, will you please graciously respond? Will you pardon our sin and our guilt, and will you keep working in our lives? I think Solomon is a great example of what intercessory prayer looks like, because we should never intercede for someone because we think we deserve something from God, or because we think they deserve something from God. I've, I've heard people pray at times, Lord, you know how, you know how faithful they've been. Will you, you know, God, you got to do this for them. And, and I understand the heart behind it. But we should pray and intercede for others because we believe God is gracious, kind, and good, not because we deserve anything from Him. Now, I know I've talked about, like, the importance of church, but I don't even think that's really the, the true application here for us. Because as New Testament believers, we don't have a temple to remind us of these things, and the church isn't a temple. God has not made some vow. We, have, we didn't pray and say, God, would you treat this former synagogue as a special place? I mean, we've prayed that, but God has not like come down in the cloud from heaven and said, yes, every prayer prayed towards this former synagogue, I will answer. We don't have a temple or a building to remind us of these things, but we do have Jesus who is the fulfillment of the temple. In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, we have that interesting back and forth between the religious leaders and Jesus after he cleanses the temple, as we call it. He goes in and he drives out all the money changers and sets up camp and basically doesn't let anybody come back in who's got any funding business going on. And so the Jews, it says in 2.18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, these are the religious leaders there, of course, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Prove to us that this is what you're doing is right. And Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple and building, and you're going to rear it up in three days? But then John gives us commentary and says, But he spoke of the temple of his body. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. If you want to have a fun study, look at the feasts, look at the sacrifices, look at the temple, look at the high priest garments, look at all the things that constituted worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple, and you'll see it all points to Jesus in some way. And so here we have in the New Testament confirmation that Jesus is our temple. He's the one that we look to Him, and it reminds us. When we look to Him, it reminds us of our importance of our relationship with Him. When we look to Him, it it reminds us to, to cry out to Him, to ask Him for things, because He is good, He is gracious, and He is kind. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it exhorts us, the writer of Hebrews talking to Christians who were struggling so much about the, under the persecution, thinking about going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system to abandon Christ and to go back to the old way of doing things. The writer says, wherefore, seeing we are surrounded, compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto who? Jesus, the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. When you and I sin, we can thrust our hands toward Jesus, looking to Him as our reminder that there is pardon for sin, and that He offers to complete the work that He started in us. We can, with confidence in His promise, lay aside any weights or sins that hold us back in our relationship with Him, knowing that He will conform us to His image by His Spirit and someday present us faultless before His throne with great joy. Well, beginning in verse 31, Solomon starts listing the various times that God's people might turn to the temple, seeking His forgiveness and restoration. He starts off with dealing with people's individual sin. Verses 31 and 32, he says, If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and an oath come before your altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and do, and judge your servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head, and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness." Solomon is now dealing with individual scenarios that come up here. When he, he mentions here this idea of when a man trespasses against his neighbor, so a person sins against another person, and as a result, an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear. If you, in Israeli society, if you defaulted on your financial commitments or if you were accused of a crime, but there were not sufficient witnesses to prove guilt, then you were required to swear an oath to prove your innocence. So, like, if you accused your spouse of adultery and there was no witnesses that could prove this, you, the person accused, would go down to the tabernacle and there'd be a special ritual that would take place, and then you would make an oath to God saying, I didn't commit adultery. And what, the, what they would then is they would commit you to the Lord. If, if you were guilty, well, now you're asking God to, to discipline you and judge you because you lied. If you're innocent, then you're asking God to justify you, to show that you're righteous and you didn't do this. And so, in other words, you would make the promise that I, I did fall on hard times and I don't have the funds to pay my debts. I'm not just being a Scrooge with my money. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't do this thing that I've been accused of. 
Well, Solomon says, if these oaths come before the temple to give them extra weight, you know, when we were kids, I, I grew up religious. I grew up in, a, uh, went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic church, not regularly, but grew up religious. And so anytime when we as kids were like, the, I had six siblings, so we accused each other of a lot of junk. And whenever, sometimes you were falsely accused, you'd be like, I did not do that. I'll swear on the Bible. Like that was the thing we always went to. Get me a Bible. I'll swear on the Bible. I didn't do that. Because, you know, your self-righteousness is all indignant. Well, if someone did that, if these oaths were brought before the temple to give them extra weight, Solomon says, please act immediately, Lord, dealing with the person appropriately. If they're lying, let them be caught. If they're innocent, let them flourish as proof of their innocence. Now, I want to clarify a few things. We do not operate that way, <laughs> right? Okay. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. Kings and governments down through history have claimed to be theocracies under God, but God was not bound by any of their claims. Israel is unique in this. And so as a church or even as a government, we don't determine innocence by a person prospering or guilt because they go through hard times. We don't do that. The church's covenant doesn't work like Israel's covenant with God did. So this is how it worked for them. And so Solomon says, Lord, if it's made before the temple, then act immediately. Verse 33, we now get into prayers that people pray regarding national sin. Verse 33, when your people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they have sinned against you and shall turn again to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication unto you in this house, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again unto the land which you gave unto their fathers. So Solomon in asking God to hear the prayers of the nation now when they experience exile because of their sin. Now, note, this is really fascinating to me. Note, Solomon doesn't say if they do this. He says when we do it. He knows his nation's history, and he expects the nation will sin against God in the future. And so he says when we have been smitten down, it means routed in battle. God had promised the nation that if they walked in his ways, he would fight for them in battle. And the Lord can't be routed in battle, right? Like no one can rout the Lord. No one can send the Lord running. So a defeat means that God left them to fight the battle on their own. So he says in verse 34, when they realize, or verse 33, when they turn again to you, when they realize their wrongdoing, they confess your name and pray and make supplication unto you in this house, then hear, forgive, and bring them back into the land. Now, remember, we cannot forget who this book was written to. This book is written to people who have experienced this. They're in exile in Babylon. And the writer is reminding them, guys, the temple might be destroyed, but perhaps God will hear our prayers, prayed in that direction, and restore us to the promised land. This is the basis of Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, right before the angel comes to visit Daniel and give him that amazing prophecy of the 70 weeks. Daniel, in verses 3 and 4, explains his thought process when he started to pray. He says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and I prayed 
unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and awesome God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. I mean, we already know that he was reading Jeremiah when he did this because he mentions just two verses earlier. I, when I saw in the book of Jeremiah that God said after 70 years, I'll bring you back, that's when I, I set my face toward, toward heaven. I wonder if he's reading First Kings too, though. I wonder if he's reading about Solomon's prayer because it's written to his group of people. Daniel, by that time in Daniel 9, is an old, old man, possibly 90 years old at that point in time. I personally think he probably did. Now, something else that's kind of cool is Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, tells us how Daniel prayed. It said that he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and he kneeled and prayed toward Jerusalem. There was no temple there anymore. But I have to believe that he had read about Solomon's prayer So he said, Lord, you told Solomon, we'll see this later on when God answers, but Lord, you said that you would honor this prayer request by Solomon. And so based on that, in your promise, I'm going to pray towards the temple and ask that you restore us. Verse 35, he brings up when drought comes into the land because of their sin. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. And then he says this, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. Now, he mentions here this drought that's occurred when the heavens shut up and there's no rain. He explains, because they have sinned against you, Now they're going to turn around if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin. That phrase, confessing your name, implies that they've been confessing a different name prior to that, which means that the sin here that Solomon's thinking of is idolatry. He says, Lord, when we walk into idolatry and disobedience to you and you shut the heavens up so that there's drought when we turn back to you and start confessing your name again, and we turn from our sin, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. And then I love this, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk. When something else replaces God and his ways in our worship, we have to learn what pleases God anew, don't we? And so Solomon prays, Lord, Don't get fed up with us because this has happened again. Has the enemy ever told you that? You can't even go back to God and ask for forgiveness for this. You've done this a thousand times. God's fed up with you. God's done with it. I mean, you clearly don't mean it because you keep doing the same thing. I mean, am I the only one the enemy has ever said that to? I doubt it. Devil's a liar. He says, Lord, don't get fed up with us because we did it again. Lord, accept graciously accept our repentance. Respond to their prayers of confession by sending teachers to lead them back to what pleases you. Man, we are not Israel. We don't have a temple. 
but it does feel like the church is in this condition right now. I feel like I hear things a lot, like the Bible is the Word of God from Christians. I hear it all the time. But it, it just seems like while the Bible may be held in high esteem as an idea, its verses, its scriptures are more often used as a path to prosperity or political fodder these days. I think Job 23 verse 12 is what we need to get back to. Job said this, I know I need this more and more. Job had been accused of all sorts of things by his friends and Job says, I didn't do it. He says in verse 12, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips for I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We are very wealthy here in the States. We are indulgent and I think the church has become indulgent. We need to get back to Job's heart here. And so I ask you tonight, do you treasure God's word as his love letter to you? Do you let it shape your conduct or is it just a proof text to justify your conduct? Too often, it seems like I hear verses used as justification for whatever behavior it is we're trying to support. I don't want my Bible to be sermon fodder. I don't want my Bible to be things I just chuck out there to get people to do what I say, get off my back. I want to remember every time I read it that it's God Almighty that's speaking to me, that He has something to say to me. When I'm in that place and I'm craving that, I've been blown away by some of the things that God will say to me. Times when I feel so justified and, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, God, or you know, I don't understand why they would say that or why they would do that to me or whatever, and then the Lord in, in that gentle, still, small voice says, if I'll just cling to his, his every word. And you say, Will, this is my heart. Look at how I've treated you when you've treated me like that. Look at how I've responded to you when you've acted like that towards me. And it's so crazy how all those justifications start to melt. And then true repentance takes place in my heart. Sometimes it seems like I enjoyed unnecessary food more than God's Word. Job said here, he says, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Well, Solomon brings up one more issue, and we're not going to get through all this tonight, so we'll quit after this. He brings up when they have food supply problems, verse 37 of 1 Kings 8. He says, if there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, uh, all these describe situations where starvation is a result of somehow either bad food, like blasting and mildew are plant diseases. So this is either bad food or, or lack of food. All these situations that are here, the caterpillar, the locust, destroying food, these would be situations that would bring about starvation. 
He says, Lord, if that happens or if, our enemy besiege, if the enemy, their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, which would also cause starvation, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, well, what prayer and supplication shall ever be made by any man or by all your people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart? and spread forth his hands towards this house, then hear thou in heaven your dwelling place and forgive, and do and give to every man according to his ways, for whose heart, whose heart you know, for you even you only know the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear you all the days of their live in the land which you gave unto our fathers. Solomon's request in this case is for both individuals or the entire nation. If one person turns to you because he mentions they know, they recognize the plague of his own heart, if the entire nation, because they recognize the plague of their own heart, or if one man, every individual man, recognizes the plague of his own heart, he says, when they or the individual becomes conscious of their spiritual sickness and they spread forth your hands, their hands toward this house, if any individual or the entire ge- nation genuinely lifts their hands towards this house like I am now, Lord, will you please hear and forgive and rescue them? Give to every man, Solomon says, according to his ways whose heart you know. God knows if we're repentant or if we just want to avoid trouble. I'm not saying it's bad to pray when you want to avoid trouble. I know sometimes God's gotten my attention finally by putting me into trouble. But certainly that's not necessarily repentance. So Solomon's precious request here is that God would steer hearts toward repentance so that the result isn't just rescue from trouble, but also hearts that revere God moving forward. He says that they might fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave unto our fathers. That they might revere you, show profound respect for you, God. The implication that the plague, that is that this plague of the heart here actually is not idolatry. It's not even disobedience but it's just a lack of making God important, a plague of the heart, a heart that's far from the Lord. It can be very easy to slip into the mindset that I'm a good Christian because, well, I'm not doing anything that's obviously wrong. I tell people, I say, there's no skeletons in my closet. I know that you don't have to read far in the news to find some Christian or pastor who's fallen. There's no skeletons in this closet, but that doesn't make me any less dangerous because we can get even into, like I heard a pastor once call it, a good rut where our hearts are just far from the Lord. We can be in a place where we can become content because we're not doing anything that's obviously wrong, and yet our hearts are far from God because our relationship with Him isn't a priority. And so I ask you tonight, is there a plague of your heart that you need to deal with? When was the last time you just sat at his feet and gave him time? Well, we'll stop there for now. We'll pick up and try to finish it out next Sunday night if the Lord wills. One last thought, though. Solomon makes a really cool statement here. For you, even you only know the hearts of all the children of men. That's true. That's an aspect of God's nature that we don't have. I don't know what's in the hearts of men. Only he knows what's in people's hearts. But John chapter 2 says something interesting about Jesus. Right after he mentioned about his temple, his, you know, his body being destroyed, he raised it up in three days. 
It says in verse 23 of that same chapter, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Well, if one part of Scripture says that only God knows that, then what does that say about Jesus? Jesus is God. I cannot make this claim about myself. I don't know what's in your heart. I have no clue what's in the hearts of men, and that's why I get deceived or tricked sometimes. But the fact here that the Scripture claims that Jesus does means that He is more than just a man. This is not saying that Jesus was very perceptive. It says He knew what was in man, which means Jesus is God. Let's all stand. Lord, you know if maybe there's a plague of our own heart right now. And maybe we're not doing anything wrong, but maybe we're just far from you. Or Lord, maybe there are areas where we need to clearly repent in regards to sinful behavior or idolatry in our life. Lord, maybe it's we just don't treasure your word like we need to. Lord, would you use the scriptures that we read tonight and talked about tonight? Would you use them to draw us close to you, to draw us to that place? More like Job, we, we can at least begin to treasure your words, even more than our necessary food. I know I need that, Lord. I need more of that every day. So would you do that in our hearts and in our lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.